Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. That's John, chapter 7. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 32 through 39 and 45 through 52. So, John, chapter 7, and as you turn there, let me invite you to pray with me as we ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to You once more and we confess to You that we are hungry and thirsty for Your Word. We are hungry and thirsty for more of You. We ask You now that You would satisfy our hunger and our thirst. We pray, Lord, that You would use Your Word mightily, that it would do its work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord now from John chapter 7 beginning in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to Him who sent Me. You will seek Me, and you will not find Me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And now verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in Him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. May God bless the reading of His holy word and let His church say Amen. Amen. In 2014, authorities in Flint, Michigan decided to change their water supply from the Detroit Water and Sewage Department to the Carignandi Water Authority, saving the city an estimated $200 million over the course of 25 years. A day after the announcement, the Detroit Water Authority let the city of Flint know that in one year, they would cut off their water supply. Put the city of Flint, Michigan in a circumstance where they needed an interim supply of water. And so what the city officials decided to do was that they would go back to a water source that they had used 
up until the 1960s, and they would draw their water from the Flint River. Some of you know the story of what happened. Unbeknownst to them and due to their failure and and testing the purity of the water, the water was contaminated and the water was toxic. And as the water began to flow into the, the pipe structure and system of the city of Flint, many of you know what began to happen is that the underground piping system in the city of Flint began to corrode at a rapid rate. What happened was that toxic water began to flow through the faucets in people's homes. People began to complain about the color, the smell, and the taste of the water. The water was filled with toxic levels of lead. Children, even children attending school, drinking the water. Tests were done on children and it was revealed that children had been exposed to toxic levels of lead. Uh, There was a a fever that broke out among people that is a result of uh, this kind of toxic exposure to lead. And many people's lives were endangered and more than a dozen people died. You might remember that the federal government declared a state of emergency in the city of Flint. And more than a dozen people, city and state officials, were indicted on charges for neglect of duty, tampering and covering evidence, and the spread of misinformation which endangered thousands of lives and led to the death of others. Just as toxic water can be deadly to our physical bodies, so too can toxic teaching be to our souls. We have to be careful as people. The kind of teaching that we ingest into our souls, don't we? Our culture today claims that the waters of moral relativity and free sexual expression and religious pluralism and deistic moralism and materialism and free self-expression, that all these waters are safe for us to consume, that they are not toxic to our souls. And the culture tells us that all these waters flow from the same pure source. It's a spread of great misinformation isn't it? Jesus invites us in this passage today, He teaches just the opposite. He tells us that not all sources of water are the same. Not all sources of water are pure and safe for the soul to drink. Jesus invites all those who are thirsty to come to Him to drink. Jesus is water for the thirsty. That's what this passage says. Do you see that there in your Bibles as we've read this passage? That Jesus is water for the thirsty. All other sources of water are contaminated and deadly and will destroy the soul. So those who are thirsty must come to Jesus for a drink. For only Jesus is water for the thirsty. Well, how can you know from this passage, that Jesus is water for the thirsty. 
When you read this passage, what does Jesus indicate in this passage that lets us know that Jesus is water for the thirsty? Here's what I want you to see here in this passage in verse 37. <coughs> Look at this passage with me in verse 37. Providence proves that Jesus is water for the thirsty. See that there in verse 37? Providence proves that Jesus is water for the thirsty. Jesus, by way of reminders, in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the favorite feast of the Jews. And in this feast, they commemorated and celebrated God's provision in their first fruits of their harvest. It was a time for them to celebrate God's blessing of water and how the fruit and the crops were able to grow. And so the Jewish people would gather together in Jerusalem and celebrate God's provision for their lives in the crops. But even more important than the celebration of the crops was their commemoration of God's providence for them in the wilderness. You remember, Israel, that they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And under the leadership of Moses, God delivered them miraculously out of the land of Egypt, and He brought them into the wilderness. While they were there in the wilderness, God miraculously provided for His people, didn't He? While they were there in the wilderness, shortly after they arrived in the wilderness, they became hungry and thirsty. And they began to complain. They began to complain not only to Moses, but to God, and began to think that maybe it would have been better for us if we had stayed in Egypt in slavery rather than come out here in the wilderness and die of thirst. And you know the story, don't you? What did the Lord do? He told Moses to go up to a rock and to strike the rock. And as Moses struck the rock, God miraculously provided water for His people in the desert. And so here the Feast of Booths was a time for the Jews to commemorate and remember and to worship the Lord for how He had provided for them, delivered them out of Egypt, and provided for them in the wilderness. Every day the, the priests would go out to the pool of Bethesda and in procession he would go out, he would leave the temple Go out, to the book, uh, go out to the pool of Bethesda and he would get water from the pool and he would bring it back to the temple and pour it at the basin of the altar. In fact, the Jews, in commemoration of their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, during this week, they would actually make tents for themselves, tabernacles or booths for themselves. And they would commemorate and remember their, or their 40 years in the wilderness by for that, by in that week, they would live in tents. They would live in booths. And it was a way of saying, God has provided for us. Here in this passage, Jesus, on the last day of this feast, the great day of the feast, what does Jesus do? Look again in verse 37. Jesus stands up. He's in the temple. And Jesus declares that all they've been celebrating, that the water has, that has been brought from the pool and poured out at the foot of the altar each and every day, that that is pointing to Him. You see that there in verse 37? If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to Me and drink. What Jesus is saying was, 
is that God's providence for you in the wilderness, what you are remembering and commemorating and worshiping the God for worshiping God for in the past has arrived for you in the present. The water that flowed from the rock that Moses struck, Jesus says, that was pointing to me. You may remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that the Israelites dwelled in the wilderness and they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. Isn't that an interesting thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10? Why would he call it spiritual food and spiritual drink? Because it was God's providential provision for them. Pointing them and directing them to someone greater who would come and provide for all their needs. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock that they drank from in the wilderness, who was it? It was Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. So here Jesus is picking up on that theme. He's picking up on that story. And He's saying that all these years of God's providence for you proves that I have come to provide salvation for you. All of God's provision in your life has been pointing up to this moment that God, not only does He provide for your needs, but He more importantly has provided salvation for your souls. So come to Me and drink. Yeah, think about that. If, you've, if you're raising children right now or you have raised children, think about how you provide for your children. You provide all that your children need, right? A home and food and clothing and socialization and discipline. And In fact, I love receiving gifts from my children because they go to the store with their mother to buy me a gift with the money that I have given them to them. And yet, they're happy to bring that gift to me and I'm happy to receive that gift from them and their goodwill. But it's not something that they've done on their own. Everything, at this point in their life anyway, comes from the gracious provision of who? Mom and Dad. Now think about the countless ways that God provides for you. Think about how God has provided a job for you, an income for you. Think about how God has provided a home for you. Think about how God provided a spouse for you or children for you. Think about how God led you in the path of educational choices or career choices. Think about how God's hand of providence each and every step of your life, the silent hand of God's providence has been guiding and directing you every step along the way. Would it not make sense then if God is so gracious to provide for all of your physical needs, would it not make sense then that God has also provided for your spiritual needs? Now, maybe you object to that. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, listen, hold on a minute, Pastor. All the good that has come in my life is a result of my own hard work. I did this. 
I'm the one who went to school and got the education. I'm the one who made the sacrifice and built the business. I'm the one who saved up the down payment for a home. I'm the one who pursued the spouse. I'm the one who did all these things. These things are the result of my own hard work. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, all of the good in my life is the result of random chance. Listen, I played the universe's lottery and I just so happened to get lucky in life and I, and I, I was able to strike the jackpot in life and, and all the good in my life is the result of random chance. There's not any sort of higher providence at work or at play in my life. Let me invite you to take a moment and to turn the logic on its head. You are presupposing in that moment that all the good is the result of your own good decisions and good hard work and discipline and saving. And, and I'm not negating any of that, but you're presupposing that everything good in your life is the result of that and, or, or you're presupposing that everything in your life is the result of random chance. But what about the poor choices that we've all made? What about the poor financial decisions that we've made? What about the poor decisions that we've made in relationships with other people? What about the ways that we have violated our commitments to one another? What about the different ways that we have neglected our duty on the job? Neglected our responsibilities? What about the failures that each and every one of us have made in our lives? How do those play into your thinking? Is the good and the result of your life? Is it the result of poor decisions that you've made? Or is the good in your life despite the poor choices that each and every one of us have made and the failures that we've had? I think if you and I were honest with ourselves, we would all confess we have a list of failures that we're not so proud of that we wouldn't want to air out in the news. We've all said and done things to people that should have ruined relationships or marriages or uh, friendships, and God is so kind and gracious to us to cover our shortcomings in His mercy and grace and provide for our needs despite them. Would it not stand to reason then that despite our sin and our shortcomings and our failures to His holy standard, that God in His grace and mercy and love has provided so gracious of a Savior for our souls? You see, Jesus is water for the thirsty. Providence proves that Jesus is water for the thirsty. If that's the case, then here's my next question. Why are there so many thirsty people? So we've already answered the question, how do we know that Jesus is water for the thirsty? We know Jesus is water for the thirsty because providence proves it, but we're still left with the question as we read this passage, why are there so many thirsty people? And here's what this passage teaches us, that 
There are so many thirsty people because some remain thirsty because of their hardened hearts. I want you to take notice of that as we look at this passage. Do you notice the response of the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and their hardened hearts? Look with me at verse 32. I want you to see three things here about hard hearts. Number one, in verse 32, I want you to see that hardened hearts scoff at Jesus. Hardened hearts scoff at Jesus. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have heard the crowd considering that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're contemplating that. And so in response to this contemplation, they come up with a plan. Let's arrest Jesus so we can kill Him. And so the religious leaders use their own police force in the temple that they had, made up of Levites, and they send these officials, these officers, to go and arrest Jesus. And they come, and Jesus is there teaching in the temple, and they are waiting for just the right moment to arrest Jesus. And while they are there, they hear Jesus teaching. And here's what Jesus teaches. I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to Him who sent me. And that interesting. Jesus knows that officers have come. They're seeking to arrest Him. And what Jesus says is, you're seeking Me, but there will come a time when you won't be able to seek Me anymore. Why is that? I'm going to go back to my Father. My Father has sent me on a mission, on a work, to seek and to save the lost. And those who are seeking Me will not always be able to seek Me or find Me. Verse 34, Jesus says that, doesn't He? You will seek Me and you will not find Me. Where I am, you cannot come. Because of your hardness of heart, because of your unbelief, you won't be able to find Me and you won't be able to go where I'm going, Jesus said. Well, how do the Jewish leaders respond to this? Look at verse 35. Notice how they scoff at Jesus in verse 35. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? We know everything about Jesus. We know he's from Galilee. We know who his parents are. We know who his family is. We know everything about him. And we know when we can find, when and where we can find Jesus. So who does this guy think he is that he'll be able to go someplace that we won't be able to find him? And then notice the insult. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Is Jesus going to do what all these other radical teachers have done? And is Jesus going to skip town and, and leave Jerusalem and leave Israel and, and, and go out like the other crazies that have risen up? And is he going to go out and teach those who have been dispersed among the nations? Is that how he's going to act? And notice how they mimic Jesus in verse 36. They even repeat what He said. What does He mean by saying, you will seek Me and you will not find Me, and where I am you cannot come? They're scoffing at Jesus. They have disdain for Jesus. Their hearts are hardened toward Jesus. Not only do they scoff at Jesus, but they scorn would-be followers. That's the second thing that a hardened heart does. A hardened heart will scoff at Jesus, and a hardened heart will scorn would-be followers. You see that there in verse 45, that the officers have come back to these religious leaders empty-handed. 
the religious leaders have sent them to arrest Jesus and they've returned and they haven't done what they were sent to do. And so the religious leaders want to know why. Why did you not bring him, they ask, verse 45. We sent you to go arrest Jesus. And notice their reply. What do they say? No one ever spoke like this man before. We've never heard anyone teach like this before. It just might be, they're saying, that this man actually is who he says he is. Maybe this Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe he really is the Christ. No one has ever spoken like this man before. And so we didn't arrest him. How do the religious leaders respond? Well, they scorned them. Look at verse 47. Have you also been deceived? Are you like all those other ignorant simpletons that are gathering around Jesus and following Jesus around and listening to Jesus' teachings? All those other poor bumpkins who have been deceived by Jesus. You're Levites. You work here in the temple. You're the officers here in the temple. You should know better. That's what they're saying. Have you been deceived like uh, all those other simpletons? Have you been deceived like them? Verse 48. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in Him? Look at us, they're saying. Have any of the religious leaders here at the temple, have any of us, put our faith and trust in Jesus? Have any of us decided that Jesus is the Messiah? Notice even their scorn for the crowds. Verse 49, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What an accusation that they're making here. These people who are gathered here at the Feast of Tabernacles are pious Jews. These are people who have grown up studying the law and going and going to Torah school and memorizing the law. These are people who, who are familiar with the Psalms and the prophets. These are people who are busy with the pious work of worshiping the Lord. And here the religious leaders say, these people are accursed. They don't even know the law. They're scorning would-be followers of Jesus. That's what hardened hearts do. Hardened hearts scoff at Jesus. They scorn would-be followers. And the last thing that we see in this passage that hardened hearts do, they reject sound logic. One of their own number, Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus, who in John 3 had come to Jesus to inquire about Jesus, to, to find out how a person can be saved, and to inquire into the matter to see if Jesus is the Messiah. Nicodemus has gone to Jesus, and here Nicodemus, he's on the Sanhedrin, and he tells them, in short, maybe we're, we're rushing to judgment here about Jesus. Look at verse 51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? What's Nicodemus saying? Nicodemus is saying, we're rushing to judgment about Jesus, and it is our common practice for us as the Sanhedrin to evaluate the claims of prophets against Scripture. It's customary for us to have a hearing and to consider these matters carefully and weigh them against Scripture. And we're not following our common practice here. It's not lawful what we're doing, Nicodemus is saying. We're rushing to judge Jesus. And notice 
how they reject the sound logic from Nicodemus. Look at verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? Are you like those other fish heads that live up in Galilee? All those rednecks that do nothing but fish all the time up in Galilee, are you, are you like one of those people? You're just too ignorant to know better, Nicodemus? They're insulting him. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, they, they, they know the Scripture, they say, and no prophet comes from Galilee. And notice the irony here. Three prophets in the Old Testament come from Galilee. Not to mention there's a whole, a whole group of prophets that Scripture doesn't even mention where they're from. So, this Sanhedrin court, they are filled with such hatred for Jesus. They're speaking out of term. They're scoffing at Jesus, scorning would-be followers, and rejecting sound logic. Do any of you know anybody like that? Maybe you have a family member who is planning to come for Thanksgiving who is just like that. Maybe you have a spouse who's that way. Maybe you have a friend that's that way. Maybe you have a child who's that way. You bring up the topic of Jesus, they scoff at Jesus, they scorn those who would follow Him, and they reject any logical argument that you present to them. What do you do? Let me just encourage you to pray and pray and pray and pray. Pray that the Spirit would open their heart. Pray that the Spirit would remove their objections to the Gospel. Pray that they would study the Scriptures to see for themselves that Jesus is the Christ. You know what a praying Christian is like? A praying Christian is like a jackhammer breaking up hard concrete in the hands of the Holy Spirit. You see, God has ordained our prayers and promised to use our prayers as a means to break even the hardest of hearts so that they receive the Gospel. Hasn't that been true for all of us at some point in our life? Wasn't there a time in your life when you were hardened toward the Gospel and rejected the Gospel? And I'd be willing to bet someone was praying for you. And the Spirit changed your heart. And maybe you feel like your prayers aren't effective. Maybe you've been praying for that person and every encounter you have with Him, it seems like your prayers are unanswered, so God must agree to use the prayers of other people, but your prayers, God can't use those because they're just not as effective and powerful as the prayers of other super-Christians. Can I just tell you, nothing could be further from the case. Your prayers are not effective because they're so eloquent or long. Your prayers are not effective for any of those reasons. Your prayers are not effective because you're so strong and powerful. Your prayers are effective because God in His grace has ordained and is pleased to use them. Think about James chapter 5. The encouragement the Apostle James gives for us to pray for one another. To pray for the sick. To pray for those who even fall into sin. And do you know, 
You know what the Apostle James, do you know who he gives as an example for us in prayer? He gives the prophet Elijah. You know the great prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven, the prophets of Baal, and the great prophet Elijah who who went up to the Lord in a chariot of fire, that one of the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, the Apostle James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like me and you. He was a man. He was a person just like me and you. He was filled with weaknesses. We certainly see that in his life, don't we? Elijah was struggled with depression. He even wanted to commit suicide at some point in his life. And yet, the Apostle James says, he prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. And then he prayed again that it would rain. And God sent the rain. The effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous man does what? It avails much. Now, Elijah's far from righteous, but he's righteous because of God's grace and mercy. And can I just encourage you? Pray and pray and pray. Not because you're righteous. Not because you're the most holy person praying. But because you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And the Lord is so gracious to ordain your prayers and for mine to break even the hardest of hearts so that they will come to Jesus and drink. You see, Jesus is water for the thirsty. Providence proves that Jesus is water for the thirsty. And yet there are some who, because of their hardened hearts, remain thirsty. They never come to Jesus and drink. But what about those who do come to Jesus and drink. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what we want to do for ourselves personally. We want to come to Jesus and drink, and that's what we want for those who are unsaved, our family members and friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. We want them to come to Jesus too and drink. What happens to those who come to Jesus and drink? I want you to see in this passage that whoever, any person, it doesn't matter, God's no respect for a person. Any person who comes to Jesus and drink will be transformed. You see that in this passage? Look with me at verse 38. Jesus says that, doesn't He? Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever comes to Me and drink, Jesus says, that person is going to be transformed. That person is going to be changed. Their thirst will not only be satisfied, but that person will become a new person. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus here, in referring to the Scriptures, He's not just quoting from one Old Testament passage. Rather, what Jesus is doing is He's drawing together all the various places in the Old Testament that describe that when the Messiah comes, there'll be abundant water that flows out and touches and changes people's lives. Passages like Isaiah 12.3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 55.1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. A passage like Zechariah chapter 14.8, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. 
chapter like Ezekiel 37 that describes the, the restoration of worship in the temple and that the temple becomes a place where God's presence inhabits and that there's a river that flows out from the temple and goes out into the new Jerusalem and everything that that water touches is changed. Jeannie Marie's grandfather, Granddad Spillers, grew up west, southwest of Macon, west of Warner Robins. And his sister settled there in Reynolds. And throughout the years out there in Reynolds, she was able to amass hundreds of acres of property. And out there on, on her acreage, was an artesian water well. It produced the purest, most refreshing water you've ever drank in your life. And Granddad and Grandmother Spillers, anytime they would go out to Reynolds to see Aunt Maddie Clyde, as she was called, would take a whole bunch of gallons, gallon jugs out there onto the property. And they would fill up those gallon jugs with that artesian well water and they would bring it back to their house in Macon. And then grandmother would take that water and you know what she would do with it? She would make the best sweet tea you've ever had in your life. She would make the best lemonade you'd ever had in your life. And you would drink that sweet tea, you would drink that lemonade, and you would say, where on earth did you get this? This is delicious. This is wonderful. And then, Proudly, her grandparents would tell you, oh, well, those come from Maddie Clyde, you know, out there in Roberta. Maddie Clyde's got out there the pure artesian water well. And every time we go out there, we get some water and we use it for everything. You know, when a Christian comes to Jesus and drinks water, it impacts everything we do, doesn't it? changes the way we talk. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we view the world. It gets into the tea that we serve other people to drink, doesn't it? It gets into our conversation. And people begin to wonder, why are you the way that you are? Why do you talk the way that you talk? Why has your life been changed the way that has been changed? What do we tell them? We tell them that Jesus is water for the thirsty. And that I've come to Jesus to drink. And my life has been transformed. Are you thirsty this morning? If you are, you should come to Jesus and drink. And if you know thirsty people in your life, and I think all of us do, those who are unsaved, those, who, those whose hearts are hardened towards Jesus, give to them a drink of water too. And their heart and their life will be transformed by the Gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank You that You have given to us so kind and gracious of a Savior who satisfies and provides for all our needs. We pray, Lord, that we would find our fulfillment in You, not, 
not from the toxic water that the world has to serve, but that we would come to our Savior Jesus Christ who offers for us the pure water whose blood was shed for our sins, who satisfies our thirst. We pray, Lord, that You would use us as a witness to others even this Thanksgiving week as we engage with family members and friends and neighbors who don't know You. We pray, Lord, that the water of our lives would be, that it would have the aroma of Jesus. That it would make people thirsty to seek You. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.